Let's Talk Books. I'm Robin Van Auken, a writer and a teacher. My guest and I want to help you write your own book. We're sharing ideas about inspiration, book publication, and promotion. You can find the episode show notes, a free novel, guides, and tutorials at robinvanauken.com. Enjoy the show. It's episode 17, and my guest is Lance Van Auken, a vice president of Little League Baseball, director at the World of Little League, author of Play Ball, the story of Little League Baseball, and my husband. Lance is probably one of the world's foremost experts on the history of Little League Baseball. There's only a handful of people who know as much or more than Lance. He attended his first Little League game as a baby in his mother's arms, as his father coached his four older brothers at Cross Bayou Little League. This was more than 50 years ago. He grew up on the baseball diamond, playing ball. He learned how to pitch and catch and hit, but more importantly, he learned the rules of Little League. Knowing those rules became significant, and when he became too old to play ball, he umpired the game. He loved to umpire, and he refined his skill for years. In 1992, he was invited to umpire at the Little League Baseball World Series, and he was smitten. The next year, he joined Little League as staff, and the rest is history. History he writes about in Play Ball. You can learn more about Lance and Play Ball, the story of Little League Baseball, in the show notes at robinvanauken.com. Let's get started. Hi, it's Robin Van Auken, the wholehearted author, and today my guest is Lance Van Auken, my husband and the author of Play Ball, the story of Little League Baseball. Welcome, Lance. Thanks for inviting me. It's uh, it, Robin, is it? Yes, that's yeah, okay. it. Exactly. My name is Robin. So how long have you been with Little League International, and what do you do with the organization? I am uh, currently the uh, vice president of Little League and executive director of the World of Little League Museum. And I've been uh, employed at Little League Baseball uh, for about 25 years. And what did you do prior to working at the World of Little League Baseball Museum? I was uh, in the communications department, ran the communications department, um, media relations, that kind of thing. Uh, And before that, uh, before coming up to Williamsport, I was uh, assistant regional director for Little League's uh, southern U.S. region down in St. Petersburg, Florida. So prior to becoming an employee with Little League Baseball, though, you were connected with the organization. Can you tell me about your first introduction to Little League Baseball and how your relationship with the game has changed throughout your life? Uh, Sure. I've been involved in in Little League at at an awful lot of different levels. Um, Introduction to it was as uh, probably a babe in arms um, back in the early 1960s in uh, Seminole, Florida at Cross Bayou Little League. And, um, you know, watching my older brothers play and then eventually being able to uh, play uh, Little League myself, starting out in the minor leagues and then the majors. And then back then you went right into senior league and eventually uh, playing big league. Um for, uh, you know, 16 to 18 year olds. And, um, then, uh, you know, started a family, um, umpired, uh, coached my son, our son (laughs) in, uh, (laughs) uh, games and, uh, throughout the years. And, you know, he ended up playing, um, at just about all the different levels of, uh, little league itself. And, uh, you know, uh, umpiring uh, was kind of a passion of mine. Uh, I was um, 
I guess, okay at it and uh, worked my way up the umpiring chain through um, the different levels of tournament play and uh, eventually got assigned to umpire at the, uh, the 1990 uh, Southern Region Tournament in St. Petersburg and uh, was the one umpire uh, luckily selected out of that tournament to umpire at the Little League Baseball World Series, which I did in 1992, um, the year before I actually went to work for Little League as an employee. Now, you talk about 1992 as the point where you started working with Little League Baseball? 93. 92 was when I umpired, yeah. Okay. So that wasn't your first trip here to the Little League Baseball World Series, though, in Williamsport. Can you tell me about your previous visits? Sure. Um, So the year before that, uh, 1991... Uh, I was a uh, a reporter, a sports reporter for the Tampa Tribune, and uh, I had started out at the Clearwater Sun, um, moved on to the Tribune. I I had been at the Tribune at that point for uh, three or four years, and a team from Dunedin, Florida, nearby where we lived, actually made it to the Little League Baseball World Series, and I was assigned to come up and cover the World Series then in in ninety uh, two uh, when they came up here. Covering the Little League Baseball World Series gave me a, a sort of a different look at uh, Little League itself. I, like many people, didn't really understand uh, what all was involved in the World Series itself, but also in the uh, you know the full time aspect of Little League. And even today, when when people hear about Little League, they wonder, you know, what we do the other eight months out of the year when, when the baseball season isn't going on, or um, so they they really don't understand the the scope of Little League and how how big it is and how far the reach is. Um, so um, you know, being a reporter here and learning that all that uh, for myself was a real eye opener. So it was an honor to be chosen for the 92 Little League World Series. There were some firsts that happened that year. Can you tell me a little bit about your umpiring experience and being here at the campus? Sure. Um, First of all, being selected as an umpire at the Little League Baseball World Series is really the pinnacle uh, for for someone who does that kind of thing, who who volunteers as an umpire. Um, I've always volunteered. Um, I've never been paid to umpire a Little League game. And the times where I umpired at places where they do pay the umpires, I just donated the money back because it's just a personal thing that I I don't think there's any difference between umpiring in Little League and coaching in Little League or being a league president. Um, you should uh, want to do it to, you know, help your community. Like I said, that's a personal thing for me. And um, so coming up here was... Um, just such a, uh, first of all, a great honor, but it was a great thrill, too, to be able to walk out onto the surface of Lomedy Stadium, you know, with ten or 15,000 people there. Uh, you know, half of them um, didn't like the decisions I made, and the other half did. So, But that's the nature of umpiring. And, um, you know, once you, you've, if you've been umpiring for such a long time like that, the calls you make, uh, just are um, come naturally to you. You're not thinking about what's going on in the stands and that sort of thing. So um, it was a great honor uh, to be able to be selected for that and um, something I'll never forget. And so you were very eager to start working for Little League Baseball. I remember vividly 
um, the date that we typed up your resume and <laughs> sent you over to Little League headquarters. Um, it was a, a big change from the kind of work you had been doing as a journalist to go over to an organization like Little League Baseball, but you loved it and you immersed yourself in it. So um, pretty interesting. When you moved here in 1996, you were working with Little League Baseball, but then around 2000, something new happened. Penn State University Press contacted mm -hmm. you out of the blue about maybe doing some work on a history of Little League. So can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? Sure. Uh, at the time, I was the media relations director up here in, in Williamsport, and um, you know we got a call from the folks at Penn State Press, and um, they wanted to know if if I would like to write a book about the history of Little League. Um, to that point, there hadn't been a any kind of anything close to a a uh, scholarly uh, historical record uh, written about Little League. There's been books here and there, picture books and things like that that have been done. Uh, but nobody had really delved into the, the history of Little League. And what interested me the most was not just the, the um, you know, the chronological order of everything that happened, the World Series champions and that sort of thing, but just how Little League has paralleled uh, U.S. history and even world history over time and how things happened in, in to Little League and in Little League that were also happening sociologically in our country and around the world. And and it was a, a neat thing to be able to uh, to write that for the first time um, because, it, you know, to that point, nobody had ever writ written about that sort of thing. And so that's one of the reasons why you call Little League the microcosm of America's history. Now, your book actually is developed and almost laid out in similar ways to America's history. Mm -hmm. You talk about early beginnings, you move into even expansion, and then you go into a civil war, and then there's a reconstruction period, and then there's into the future. Now, this book, Play Ball, The History of Little League Baseball, was first published in 2001 by Penn State University Press, but the book has since gone out of print. That means all of the copies have been sold out. We've been contacted by various booksellers and readers who want that book again. And so to, to answer this call, we've agreed to a reprinting. And that being said, you've had to jump back into research mode. But before we talk about new research that you've conducted, let's talk about the initial research you did on the book. Can you tell me what kind of systems you used and how you were able to spend some spend time going through Little League's histories and archives? A lot of it happened um, late at night. You know, I didn't, I couldn't uh, do work on the book during um, my hours as a Little League employee, first of all, because you know, those eight, nine hours a day, <laughs> uh, five days a week uh, are enough. I, I have enough to do. I had enough to do to be able to fill that time. So um, there were a lot of uh, late night hours uh, researching. The The Internet really wasn't uh, what it is today. So a lot of that research was in-person research in uh, libraries, uh, in, you know, looking through microfilm, uh, that sort of thing. And put it, piecing that th that history together and trying to find 
um, elements of of that history that uh, really hadn't been written about before. Uh, and and I know you you put in a lot of time after hours editing what I what I'd been writing. So um, for both of us, um, it, it was a a lot of hours uh, put in to um, writing something that we both um, feel very deeply about. Well, I know we conducted a lot of interviews, and we were lucky at the time because we're talking about 2000 at this period. There were still many people alive Mm -hmm. that we could talk to. We've since then lost several key people, several key players from Little League Baseball. Can you talk a little bit about some of the people that have passed away since Little League was first published, our Playball Little League book? Sure. Well, and very recently, um, Dr. Creighton Hale uh, plays a, a huge part in this book because he played such a big part in Little League for, for um, you know, a half century. Um, Dr. Hale came to Little League in uh, the mid-1950s from uh, Springfield College, uh, basically on loan, and because he wanted to research, uh, you know, whether or not Little League was good for, um, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old boys, um, because there were people coming out saying that, that it might not be so good, but he wanted to do research on his own to discover uh, whether it was a, a healthy thing or not. He discovered that it was. He discovered that Little League was actually very good for kids, so he ended up staying with the program and um, became hired uh, in the 1950s and, uh, you know, eventually became the, the president and CEO of the corporation and uh, just passed away last year, uh, unfortunately. But after a long and really storied career uh, that, that took him around the world and, um, you know, had him meeting some of the some great people in history, um, and then, there, you know, there's people maybe behind the scenes, uh, people that used to work at Little League, worked at Little League for a long time. Um, one I remember, uh, Art Klein was the HR director at Little League for many years. And, um, you know, Art actually played in the very first uh, Little League Baseball World Series in 1947. Um, Sylvia Sutherland was another um person that was involved in Little League in the Chicago area in the 1950s, and she ended up being hired by Little League and um, worked for many years there. She's since passed away. There's so many people that were instrumental in the in the early years of Little League who, have, who we've lost. Um, you know, uh, Tuck Frazier played on the um, very first, in the first Little League game itself in 1939, and he passed away recently. So um, all these people have uh, major parts in the book. And, um, you know, we're, like you said, we're lucky that, uh, we wrote it when we did, when their, um, recollections could be, um, saved for history. And of course, the one person that is paramount in the story of Little League Baseball is the one person we never had the opportunity to meet. And that, of course, is Carl Stotts. Can you tell me a little bit about your research into Carl Stotts and the image you have created over these years of him? Sure. Um, well, the good thing um, about that and the timing was uh, Carl Stutz, he, he had been interviewed hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, his quotes appeared in newspapers around the country, particularly during the 1950s, um, during those um, heyday years of, of Little League. So a lot of what he said um, 
exists in a lot of forms. So being able to track that down, um, we're lucky that it was available. And um, so a lot of it exists, and we were able to paint a picture of of Carl Stutz that um, that I think does him justice. We were also lucky enough to be able to communicate with his daughter, mm -hmm. his daughter Karen Stutz Myers and Monia Lee Adkins. Yep. They both contributed to our information with this book. And Karen Stutz Myers lives here locally in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and she still comes to quite a few Little League mm -hmm. baseball books. One of the things about this book that um, we were enjoying about it is that it was able to provide a healing. Can you tell me a little bit about this division in Little League that happened with the Stutz family and was your Civil War in your sure. book? Yeah, that's that's why we called it the Civil War. So in the early 1950s, uh, Little League actually incorporated uh, in the state of New York. And, um, you know, when that happens, the the corporation, you know, that has a board of directors and the board of directors legally then runs that corporation. So for the first few years in the 1950s, um, Carl uh, Stutz basically told the um, the board what to do and, and how to do it. And he ran things. But as time went on, the board started asserting its own control. And particularly um, one person who came onto the board um, from U.S. Rubber. U.S. Rubber was an early sponsor of Little League, so they're paying a lot of money uh, and they they assigned uh, Peter McGovern to to uh, basically oversee a lot of those operations. He, uh, you know, had a, a very strong willed uh, personality. He uh, went to college at Penn, and um, Carl Stutz, on the other hand, uh, you know, was kind of workmanlike. Um, even during the Little League Baseball World Series, although the fact that he was running the program, you'd see him out there raking the field uh, before games, that kind of thing. Um, while Peter McGovern was um, maybe a little bit more patrician, um, they both, I think, had the same goals for Little League to provide the program to as many kids as possible uh, at its core, but really different ways of getting there. They clashed early on and the Civil War uh, that we talk about uh, really came to a head at, in late 1955 when um, Carl took legal action to to take the program, the operation of the program, back from the board of directors. Um, that went into a, into a lawsuit in the early in early 1956, and uh, the result of which it never went to trial. The, the result of it was um, Carl lost control of the program. The the control of the program resided then with that board of directors. Uh, and unfortunately, Carl really had nothing um, to do officially with Little League after that point. And, um, but Little League obviously owes him, you know, everything because um, without him, this, this wouldn't have been started. He happened to be the right person at the right place at the right time back in 1939 when he got it going. And, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, he he never came to a Little League Baseball World Series, uh, but he went and watched his grandkids playing in actual Little League games. So, uh, you know, we're just lucky that we have all that information from him um, from those early years and, and those recordings.
He was a meticulous note keeper, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, his local legacy does continue, and it does live on at Original League, which right. is the birthplace of Little League Baseball. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is in downtown Williamsport, across from the historic Bowman Field. Mm -hmm. Now, Williamsport is the birthplace, but South Williamsport, right here on the other side of the river, is actually where the Little League headquarters is today and where all of the World Series are played. Can you tell us a little bit about that move across the river? Sure. Um, well, that, that kind of grew out of that the conflict in the 50s. And for several years, the Little League Baseball World Series was played at Original League, and Little League, the corporation, would basically borrow the keys to the to the field from uh, original league and the keys themselves had to be handed over from original league to the city and then the city would give them to little league so it was like this cumbersome process the offices of little league at the time were uh, rented out upstairs at, at a at a um, J C Penney in downtown Williamsport so at the time there there was maybe an idea that Little League could move uh, out of Williamsport because the roots at that point in the organization itself were not that deep in Williamsport because the, the founder was gone. And a lot of the friends of the founder who had been involved in the program had left uh, with him as well. So the uh, the businessman locally, uh, led by the uh, the publisher of the local paper here, the Williamsport Sun, I think it was called at the time, uh, Jack Person, uh, who, and Jack is turning a hundred years old this coming this coming August during the Little League Baseball World Series. So, happy birthday to you, Jack! Uh, Jack Person um, put together this plan along with other businessmen in the community to um, to purchase land in South Williamsport, 20 some odd acres of land that had been gouged out to build the dikes along the Susquehanna. So the land itself wasn't, certainly wasn't pretty, wasn't, maybe wasn't worth all that much because all the topsoil had been taken off of it. And, and this hole had been gouged out of the side of a mountain called Bald Eagle Mountain. And, uh, he, they just thought that, you know, purchasing this land and giving it to Little League, just saying, here's the land, we'll, we'll even help you, uh, you know, well, the community will help you uh, develop the land and and keep Little League here because these businessmen saw this, maybe this cash cow, potentially leaving. And in fact, uh, we talk about this in the book, and this was one of the discoveries that we made that hadn't been even talked about since the 1950s, that uh, at the time, Little League was actually considering moving to Brooklyn, New York, uh, and overtaking uh, Ebbets Field, the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, the former home of the Brooklyn Dodgers. They had moved to Los Angeles. So the owner of the Dodgers, uh, Walter O'Malley, actually offered everything to Little League to move there. Walter O'Malley, at the time, was a, a, a trustee on the Little League Foundation. So that's how that contact was made. So Little League at the time came very close to moving to Brooklyn, New York. And I often wonder how different Little League would be today if it had been in Brooklyn for the last 50 or 60 years rather than in the more or less sleepy town of Williamsport. So they did move over to uh, South Williamsport, developed the land. That, that giant hole became the 
the bowl that uh, Lamedy Stadium sits in today and, and creates that the two berms uh, where, you know, 30,000 or, pe- or so people can sit and watch the Little League World Series. Um, the field over at Original League is still there. It still looks very much the same. Um, it It's far too small now to hold a World Series. There's no way you could get 40,000 people in there. But um, And sometimes we think the Lomedy Stadium is getting too small, too. Um, we haven't really reached capacity. We're not sure what capacity is, but the largest crowd we've ever had there is about 45,000 people. Um, you don't really know exactly how many because um, Little League has never charged uh, for admission to the Little League Baseball World Series since the first one in 1947, and and hopefully we never will. So let's talk a little bit about the research that you conducted. Were there any kind of discoveries that stand out in your research for play ball? Sure. Um, one of them uh, was, you know, there's always been debate about who the first girl was to play Little League. And um, there were certainly a number of girls in the early 1970s who played uh, well-publicized because at the time, you, if you remember the Equal Rights Amendment was working its way through different states, and uh, Richard Nixon had signed Title IX, which gave many more opportunities to girls and women in sports. And uh, so uh, women's rights was was really on every everybody's minds at the time. So you had these girls trying to play Little League, and uh, since 1952, or 51, uh, no, 52, the uh, Little League had a rule that specifically said girls could not play. And um, so girls and some local leagues flaunted that rule uh, in the early 1970s. And Little League's response here in Williamsport was to send a letter to the league, uh, what amounted to a cease and desist letter to tell them to get the girl off the team or you're going to lose your charter. And uh, that was a big thing at the time because – when you lost your charter, it meant you couldn't play Little League. You couldn't have Little League in your community. You couldn't enter the tournament. You didn't have a chance to make it to a World Series, that kind of thing. So in most cases, the, the league would do just that, take the girl off the team. And But the National Organization for Women wasn't having it. They um, contacted the parents of the, these girls and offered to underwrite lawsuits on their behalf in um, – uh, we think 20 different states and uh, sued Little League in each of those states. And of course, Little League has to defend those lawsuits, which is very expensive to do. Um, so, you know, that's the story that everybody remembers or that a lot of people remember. But um, what we discovered um, was that the very first girl to play Little League was actually way back in 1950. Uh, Catherine Masser uh, played in Corning, New York. She she um, tucked her hair under her hat and tried out and made the team and uh, played a season. Now, you know, early on in the season, if not before the season started, she, she admitted that she's a girl. And the coaches said, well, that's okay. You're a good player. You can just keep playing. And it was something of a novelty. She played a, a whole season uh, in Corning, New York. Uh, the news of that made its way to Williamsport. And maybe the reason for the rule that appeared the next year uh, for the first time that said girls are not permitted under any circumstances. Um, 
Now, up to that point, the rules themselves only mentioned boys, but it specifically did not bar girls from playing. Um, and so Catherine, you fast forward 20 years or so to the 1970s, she uh, saw these stories being written about girls playing uh, Little League or trying to play Little League. And uh, so she wrote to Little League headquarters and they researched it and found that, you know, absent any other information, they said that you are the first girl to have played Little League. And it just ended there. N nobody wrote about it since then until our book. So we were able to contact Catherine um, and uh, and talk to her and, and um, just, you know, she's a big part of the book because she's a big part of, of history. And, you know, maybe not a trailblazer in the way some of those girls were that uh, sued Little League in the 1970s and were sort of vilified for what they did. Um, but um, still, you know, Catherine Masser is a big part of our book. She's a big part of the Little League Museum uh, where we, we honor her today. Um, the other one is uh, Cannon Street uh, YMCA story. And that was in uh, 1955. Uh, you know, Little League has never asked for demographics from its league. We don't ask them how many players are black or white or Latino or whatever it happens to be. So, at the time, all of the leagues, existing leagues in South Carolina were white. And uh, in 1955, there was an all-black league in uh, Charleston called the Cannon Street YMCA Little League that applied for charter, and Little League duly chartered them as, as they would anybody. And uh, it came to the end of the season, and, and this um, all-black league fielded their all-star team, uh, but the, the white leagues in Charleston refused to play them. And then the white leagues in all of uh, South Carolina refused to play them. And we, we, when I say we, I wasn't even born yet. Little League did the right thing. Uh, they told the white leagues that you have to play them or you're going to forfeit. And not only did those leagues uh, forfeit, but they left the program altogether. And all throughout the South, it spread throughout the South. Little League lost hundreds and hundreds of leagues in the southern states because of the principled stand that Little League took to say, you know, you don't have a choice not to play children of color. And uh, the, the bittersweet part of this is because that team in Charleston never got to play a game in the tournament, they never got to play anybody locally, they didn't play anybody in their state, they didn't get to play in their regional, they didn't uh, get to advance to the Little League Baseball World Series. And we, we have a rule today, still on the books, that says you have to play and defeat a team at the previous level in order to advance to a level. So they they would have advanced three levels and been in the Little League Baseball World Series. So Little League did not allow them to advance at the time, but they did pay for the team to come up to Williamsport and uh, be present at the Little League Baseball World Series and sit in the stands and watch the games and stay in the same uh, dormitories in Lycoming College that the uh, that the uh, the team players were staying at. So that's the bittersweet part of it. You had these kids through no fault of their own who uh, you know weren't allowed to play just uh, the simple game of baseball because of the color of their skin. So um, you know you. Flash forward years and years, and I think it was uh, about 50 years after that, 55 years after that, we invited the Cannon Street YMCA team 
to the Little League Baseball World Series. Uh, they got to throw out the first pitch in the opening game. And uh, we gave them a banner that identified them as the, the uh, state champions for South Carolina. That is an excellent story. Thank you. So now you've been witness to more than 25 years personally of Little League Baseball's history. Are there any other standout memories that you have of the organization, even whether they were from early or contemporary memories? Sure. And in the book, in the in the updated 12th chapter of the book, um, we talk about this. Um, the thing that a lot of people are going to remember uh, in the early part of that, in right in 2001, uh, is the Danny Almonte story. And uh, Danny was a, a player who uh, he grew up in the Dominican Republic and uh, moved to the uh, Bronx uh, at some point. And uh, his father, to make this story short, his father falsified his birth certificate or, or obtained a false birth certificate for him so that by the time he actually made it to the Little League Baseball World Series in 2001, uh, he was too old. Uh, to be playing. He was actually 14 years old, playing against, you know, 11 and 12-year-olds. So he's obviously a very good player in comparison, and Little League did not get uh, documentation on his age until the day uh, after the tournament ended. They ended up finishing third, and uh, Little League investigated it and found that he was indeed 14. So they vacated all of their wins for that team, the Rolando Polino Little League team. And, uh, you know, it was a, a story we obviously would rather have not um, written or experienced at the time, uh, but it did happen. And the, the I guess one of the good things about it was we were able to uh, point out that that was one player out of 6,000 or so that have played in the Little League Baseball, Baseball World Series who we've been able to determine uh, was – definitively too old to be playing. And uh, the other thing we talk about in the book is maybe the story that um, people remember more than Danny Almani now. It sort of finally pushed that off uh, to the side. And um, that was Monet Davis. Uh, Monet uh, made it to the League Baseball World Series on a team from Philadelphia in 2014. Just an outstanding athlete. Uh, you know, threw a 70-mile-an-hour fastball and um, was a great pitcher, great hitter. And, uh, you know, they, that team did not make it to the final that year, but she did pitch in a in a Little League Baseball World Series game against a team from Nashville. Uh, not only won the game, but pitched a shutout, and no girl had ever done that before. Um, and, you know, we point out in the book that not only was she a great athlete, but she was a great ambassador for the sport, for her gender, and and I, I think for her race, too. Uh, you know, Monet is African-American. Um, she comported herself so well in a, in a really bright glare of media light on her before uh, or during that Little League Baseball World Series. And since then, you know, she appeared on all these talk shows. Um she got to, um, you know, meet the president and first lady. And, uh, you know, she her first love is basketball, but she's still playing baseball and she's playing uh, softball. So we, you know, we catch people up on her story in the book as well. 
Now, you mentioned the president, but let's go back to 2001 and talk about that president. We had a president that visited the Little League World Series, but you also got to visit the president with Little League. Tell us a little bit about T-Ball on the South Lawn and that initiative. Um, sure. Um, so even before uh, President George W. Bush ran for president, we, we knew he had played Little League uh, when he was governor of Texas. The curator at the uh, Little League Museum, Adam Thompson, had found all four of his rosters when he was 9, 10, 11, and 12 years old uh, playing in Midland, Texas. And, you know, we, we knew that. We had those. We knew his parents had been volunteers because actually the the Little League uh, Parents of the Year Award is named the George and Barbara Bush Little League Parents of the Year uh, Award. So, uh you know, that was um, something we had in our back pocket. So, you know, you, you go forward to the time that he's running for election. We we actually got a call, or I got a call, from uh, then Governor Bush's, uh, one of Governor Bush's uh, people in Texas, uh, asking if um, the uh, winner of that year's Little, Little League World Series, if it was a team from Texas— would they be open to uh, having a phone call from Governor Bush? And I said, well, I think he should call whether or not they win. And, and he did. He ended up calling. They didn't win. Um, but it started a relationship that ended up, you know, he did get elected. Uh, and we got a call not long after he moved into the White House from uh, Jim Wilkinson, who was then Deputy Director of Communications, um, asking if we might be interested in doing something to... Um, together with the White House to help promote uh, sports in general and, and baseball in particular. So that grew into the T-Ball on the South Lawn program. And not only that, um, President Bush came to the Little League Baseball World Series in 2001, um, is at this point the only sitting president to have um, visited the Little League Baseball World Series. And uh, like I said, the T-ball and the South Lawn program came from that. We ended up over the next eight years playing eight games, or I'm sorry, 20 games on the South Lawn of the White House uh, with T-ball players, uh, challenger division players uh, from uh, actually from eventually from every state in the country plus Puerto Rico. And, um, you know, for me being able to, I oversaw that program for Little League and, um, you know, I got to go into the West Wing of the White House 71 times during that time. Not counting them all. Yeah, there. right. <laughs> um, and in, in the last couple of years, because that relationship kept getting better and better, um, uh, myself and my wife uh, got invited to a uh, cocktail party at the White House to a... Uh, Kenny Chesney concert. Kenny Chesney concert oh, yeah. in the Rose Garden. Uh, we got invited to the official arrival ceremony for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The Pope. The Pope. Uh, it's the arrival ceremony for the Pope. Christmas dinner. Yeah, and um, Christmas. the last Christmas party um, held at the Bush White House. We got invited to that. And all of those things are just such vivid, great memories um, that I really owe to Little League um, for providing those. Because I, you know, being a, <laughs> a sports reporter at the Tampa Tribune, if I'd have been doing that all this time, I probably, well, I surely wouldn't have done all those things. This is true. So you say you've worked on a new chapter for the book. Tell us a little bit about the topics that you're exploring in the new edition. 
Well, um, you know, like I said, we do talk about a little bit about Danny Almani um, and about uh, Monet Davis, um, but also about the initiatives that Little League has uh, put forward in that time um, and and sort of the impetus for those. And the impetus for those is our relationship with ESPN, and which has just gotten better and better. You know, in the early days uh, – Televising the Little League Baseball World Series with one game, and 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 it was uh, tape delayed at that. Uh, in the '80s, that started growing um, to include more games on ESPN, and '90s more games, and then in the 2000s, um, the relationship really blossomed, and to the point where all of the games uh, played in the Little League Baseball World Series, all 32 games, are televised on either ESPN or on ABC. Uh, plus uh, at least one game, at least the championship game from all of the other tournaments are televised, plus um, many of the games from the regional tournaments in Little League Baseball, so that ultimately more than 100 games are televised uh, during the month of August on ESPN and ABC. And, um, you know, that obviously meant uh, more money uh, for Little League, and what we've done with that money is uh, return it to the leagues through uh, a lot of different initiatives. You know, there's one um, for uh, helping to protect players in our leagues, children in our leagues from um, sexual predators. And that's, you know, it's very important to us, obviously, because our program is all about kids and um, keeping them safe, uh, not only on the field, but off of it. And, uh, you know, that program has been great for us. We, we provide free background checks to our leagues to be able to weed out these, um, people and, um, the education programs, uh, Little League University is another big push for us where we, uh, bring all these different assets, a lot of great, uh, video based assets into a, an online program that uh, helps teach anybody in the league who's going to take any position on how to do that the best way. And, uh, you know, we understand that there's a lot of turnover in local leagues, uh, especially today with families being more mobile maybe than they used to be. And um, this allows us to be able to to educate uh, people at the local level who have maybe have had no exposure to Little League and uh, to be able to do the job right, including umpires. Um, There's... uh, other education programs that we do, uh, we we're also uh, provide grants to leagues that uh, run into problems. Um, you know, stories that appear uh, to us are like the uh, hurricanes that hit uh, Florida and in the Caribbean, fires in California, tornadoes in the Midwest. When those kinds of things happen, obviously, you know, homes are hit, but also also little leagues are hit. And in some cases, the little league might have to shut down. So uh, our relationship with ESPN has helped us to, uh, along with sponsors too, to uh, help us provide money to those leagues so that they can keep operating and and keep a uh, vital part of their community going. So the reason why you're returning this money to the teams and the leagues is because Little League is a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. I just want to be clear about that. So when people think that you've signed a, a massive contract, not you personally, but Little yeah. League has signed a massive contract with ESPN, it's not that this money is just going into coffers. It's going right. into organizations and programs and people. Yeah, we, we're very proud of the way we spend money. Um, 
Little League, since the very beginning, uh, has had no debt. Um, you know, we we are very, very careful about how we spend money. And uh, we are the only youth sports organization in this country that has a federal charter of incorporation. And what that means is, um, you know, we're not incorporated in any one state. Um, we're incorporated by the United States Congress. And that's who we answer to. And uh, on an annual basis, Little League has always received an unqualified rating uh, when we've had our books done by an outside entity. And, um, you know, returning the money to the leagues is shouldn't be surprising to anybody who knows us um, because, you know, that's what we do. We Our job is to um, try to get as many kids on Little League fields as possible and to make that as easy as possible on the, the local volunteers who run them. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end, but I just want to wrap up with one more question or two. You're a writer, and your early career was as a journalist with newspapers in Florida, but also with the U.S. Army Reserves. Mm -hmm. Now, writing is something you've always enjoyed, and most people don't know this, but you and I met in college working on the student newspaper. Right. That's where we fell in love. And one of our earliest dates, I have to let the world know, was um, I was taken to your local Little League baseball field and watched you umpire a game. Yeah. So I knew what I was getting into <laughs> with the rider, the umpire, and the baseball. But you are you working on any new books? Can you tell me about what's fascinating to you now? Where is your imagination taking you? And what's in the future for you as a writer? Sure. Um, but first, I have to say, you know, in those early days, I promised to surround you with diamonds. Um, you just didn't know that they were baseball diamonds. Oh, That's true. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, new books, you know, play ball is is other than books that I've written for Little League. There's a, a book called uh, A Year in the Life of Hometown Little League that I did. Um, that's an instructional book, but, um, uh, so I am working on a, a novel. Um, it's, um, sort of loosely based on some of the things that we do here. Um, you know, it starts with a, uh, couple that are sitting in their hot tub after, um, you know, kind of cutting the cord and not being exposed to anything. Um, no news, no, uh, cell phones, no internet for, for a week or two. And, um, they live out in the in the boonies, sort of the way we do here, and in South Williamsport. And um, unbeknownst to them, the the world all kind of goes into toilet around them, and uh, they have to um, figure out a way to survive in 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 a, an apocalypse. So this is an interesting idea. You also had a couple of other novels. On the back burner, are you still toying with your idea of writing other novels besides this apocalyptic one? It might be too scary for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's a couple of different ideas that um, came up, like while we were traveling, you know, thinking about uh, when we were in London, uh, you know, we, we did some mudlarking. And what that is, is, you know, the Thames River uh, is tidal, so it, it rises and falls with the tides. So when it falls, it exposes these mud flats where you can actually walk out there and it's basically it's what amounts to trash. But, you know, um, that kind of thing becomes treasure after a while. So when you walk out there, you can find very easily uh, like these little clay pipes that people used to smoke 
uh, tobacco in that they would, you know, once they smoke the tobacco, they'd break them and throw them off the bridge. And there's thousands and thousands of them out there. You just have to walk and, and find them. But it's pretty neat because, you know, they're 150, 200 years old when you pick these things up or a piece of pottery from a plate or something that someone threw in the Thames 300 years ago. So all basically that kind you're of, looting. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, they let you <laughs> do that. Like if you find anything of value, though, it belongs to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. So that's the rule. Um, they do allow people to mudlark. Um, you just can't dig for it. You have to. You can get a permit to dig for it. Anybody can go get a permit. It allows you to dig down into the mud. But if you find something on the surface of it, you can pick it up. Um, so anyway, the story starts there. And um, it's a family that travels to London and finds out that they're related to uh, Captain Bly, the the captain of the bounty uh that you know there was a mutiny on the bounty in the south pacific and uh it you know it takes them uh back in history because it, it creates sort of this time warp um so i'm not going to get any further into that but it's fun it's something aimed at young readers well wonderful thank you so much lance i appreciate you being here today and good luck with us on publishing a new edition of play ball Thanks very much. I'll go do the dishes now. Thank you. That's great. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the show and that it motivates you to volunteer for a cause you love today. Lance has been a Little League baseball participant and advocate all of his life, either as a little boy playing the game, a young father coaching his son, a dedicated volunteer umpiring at local games, as an employee with the organization, and as a fan in the stands. His work on play ball the story of Little League Baseball is an important contribution to America's and the world's history because Little League has been an important aspect in millions of people's lives. It's a global institution and its history needs to stay available. That's why we've agreed to work with Wendy Butler Dean, owner of the Omnibus Publishing, to update and republish the book, making sure it's available to all the young families introducing their children to this iconic game. We think that Wendy is a dynamic and brilliant young publisher, and her background in sports is a bonus. She understands that family and sports need to know more about the game and how to reach out to them. Look for Playball the Reboot this spring with the omnibuspublishing.com. You can find Lance at littleleague.org, and you can find me online at robinvanauken.com. While you're on my site, download my novel, West Wind. It's free. And speaking of free, I've got half a dozen free resources for writers and other creatives, so sign up today. Check out the episode and the show notes at robinvanauken.com, session 17. Thank you so much, and if you haven't done so, please hit that subscribe button on your device. Until next time, goodbye. <music>